has introduced the climate law and put the 55% reduction of greenhouse gas emissions by 2030 in the legislation. We've already spoken in the previous episode about the potential of the wind energy. And today we are going to speak about the decarbonization path for Europe and geothermal energy. That's why I'm uh, speaking with uh, Sanjeev Kumar, head of policy at European Geothermal Energy Council. And I'm welcoming you here at the Interesting Times podcast powered by Think Tank Burgundia. Welcome, Sanjeev. It's a wonderful feeling to be speaking to you real time today. It's a pleasure to see you in, in the flesh and it's uh, a delight to have me on your podcast. Thank, Thank you. you. Nice to have you too. Mm. So Sanjeev, tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, I work for the European Geothermal uh, Energy Council. Um, it's a trade association for the geothermal industry across Europe. Um, and, I've, uh, and I'm kind of heading up all of our policy and advocacy work. So we have a very busy schedule with the climate crisis increasing um, and a new legislative package to, to move the EU to a 55% uh, greenhouse gas reduction target. Uh, Prior to that, I've worked most of my life in uh, energy um, and climate activism. So I've kind of covered both sides of the same coin. Um, and I've realized that, you know, whilst many important things have happened, certainly many important things in Europe have happened, we still are a long, long way from where we need to be. And in many ways, we, we have to both intensify what we're doing, but we have to think much more radically about mm -hmm. how we get there, because how we get there is the most important thing. Um, and we kind of take our eyes off that and kind of look for our personal glories in terms of I, I was involved in this piece of legislation or I was involved in that and it's, it's yeah. not where you need to be. So this is why I'm where I am today. I'm focused on how do we decarbonize heating and cooling, which is half of the energy we consume in Europe and roughly half the energy we consume across the world. So if we're going to get to 1.5 degrees and below, we really need to tackle this. And you know now that Europe has uh, the reduction of 55% by 2030 in the climate law, my first question, do you think it's enough? And the second question is, how do you see this decarbonization path? Yeah, okay, so the response to the first question is not what I think, but actually what science tells us. Mm -hmm. Science tells us that 55 is below what is needed from rich developing countries, which have the political machinery and the financial ability to decarbonize much quicker, mm -hmm. as well as moral responsibility. After all, most of the emissions in the atmosphere were by us. Um, so we, we have to act much quicker to clean up the contribution we've made to the crisis. So the first thing is is that 55% is not where we need to be. And the second thing is is that 55, although that's the number on paper, in actual practice it's much lower because we've included all sorts of loopholes now and we're going to include more and more loopholes as the legislative process continues. So 55% um, in that sense starts to look much, much weaker um, than before. However, Half of this is what you do, and half of this is what you actually tell everybody else that you're doing. Um, now, in order to solve global climate change, we have to move the global community. And for Europe, it's important to increase, to put forward a 55% target, because it has spurred already action in many other countries, some of the big polluters. And it's allowed the US to also come on board, um, uh, you know, with the change of, uh, change of presidencies. Yeah. And their ability to bring together 
other big major polluting countries, the big 20 uh, uh, polluters. Um, so in that sense, it's actually quite important. Europe has invested 40 years worth of uh, time and effort into climate diplomacy. And we're starting to see it pay off. Um, but again, it's still too little and too late. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I always say that this is, the climate law is kind of like the, the first step on a ladder. You've got to take the first step in order to get to the end. Um, we're on that first step now. Um, and what science is telling us is that we need to run up the ladder, not take, effort, not take it very, very slowly. The good thing is, is that actually when you look at the energy system, when you look at the technologies that are available for decarbonisation, this is a much shorter trajectory than you think it is, than okay. one think it is. Um, and at the same time, there are so many benefits that come from this um, that it's not just about energy or climate or economics, it's about humanity. Um, and uh, one of the things that I've, I've discovered over time is, is that if you're a policymaker, you think of energy and you think you count it in you know, gigajoules and you know, um, uh, so many different alien mathematical terminology. But actually, energy has always been about power. Um, uh, both the power to you know, run machines, uh, but also about geopolitical power. And one of the great things that uh, something that renewable energy does is remove a lot of the hostility that we have within the world. Yeah. You know, if you take you know, if you take the case of geothermal, you know, no country is going to invade Belgium because it has geothermal wells. Same way, no one's going to invade the, the U.S. or anywhere else. Um, no one's going to steal the sun from the Azores and move it. Um, so, so in many cases, you remove a major source of conflict throughout human history, mm -hmm. um, and that in itself is priceless. So it's not just about saving humanity, it's about redefining humanity as well. It sounds really exciting. I mean, we are on a path to, to change completely the way we operate, to change the way mm -hmm. uh, we use our energy, to change mm -hmm. the way we find our energy, if I can put it that way. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, since we have to run up that ladder, uh, what is the path that we can take? How do you see the decarbonization strategy in Europe? Okay, well, again, there's <laughs> so many questions wrapped up into that one. So the first one is, is um, uh, what is the path we need to take? Now, we've kind of gone through, you know, the, the trouble is, is that sometimes you get too many older people making decisions and they're comfortable fighting yesterday's battles. Old journals mm -hmm. are very good at, you know, this is what I would have done with the benefit of hindsight. Um, and what that means is that we've kind of locked ourselves into certain policy frameworks and it's kind of hard to break them out. So we have a, a strong focus on carbon pricing. I'm a, I'm a big advocate for carbon pricing, but we place too much emphasis on this to solve a lot of our problems. Mm -hmm. Today, the European carbon price uh, is at 50 euros and it's going to continue to go uh, uh, higher and higher. But carbon prices only really impact the technologies that are at market um, so you can deploy them much quicker you still have a lot of technologies which are before market that's the first thing um, so what we need to do is just to be thinking much more about what do we need to do to get these technologies into the market rather than how do I make my legislation already exist that much better um, and that that requires a degree of maturity that sadly we don't have in this conversation that's, that's a problem um, mm -hmm. the second uh, thing is that um, if we take a, a step backwards and we look at the technologies that are already available what you find is, is in many instances they don't really have that much of a lifestyle impact in fact they make lifestyles better um, you know you you take a take electric cars for example I mean 10 years ago, if you if you said electric cars are going to revolutionise the world, people would have laughed at you. You know, Elon Musk, um, many other people in the um, electric vehicle world, people in the 
battery world, the lithium-ion space have just radically changed our understanding of what's acceptable to the point now where you're more likely to see somebody on an electric-powered scooter on your street. Um, almost everybody has an electric-powered bicycle at different different uh, varieties and different costs. Um, but we also have, you know, phones, um, uh, we have smart watches, you know, all of these things are radically making our lives different and in many cases better. Um, so the negativity around the change and transition to lifestyles is, is not, the, not as bad as you think it is. And if you take, for example, living in your house, you know, you, we consume fossils, you know, when we turn the heating on, when we turn the lighting on and when we make our food. Uh, but if you just change the energy system, you will still do the same thing. You will still turn the heating on, you will still use lighting and uh, still heat up food, but you'll be using a different energy source. So your lifestyle doesn't really change that much. Um, and I think we've spent too much time getting trapped into this rabbit hole. This is a major, major change for, for people. It's not. Um, you know, I, I love that part, actually, because, <laughs> <laughs> because in reality, everybody is saying, oh, to be sustainable is so difficult. It's so hard. Yeah. We have to, you know, <laughs> refuse to do certain things. But the way you look at it is completely different. Yeah, well, look, I, it's, it's, it's psychology. You know, as human beings, we're afraid to change. We're used to <laughs> everything <laughs> staying the same place, and I'm familiar uh, with it. And if you, if you got someone to say, well, your life is going to change radically, of course, people will get afraid. If you were to go up to somebody and say, hey, do you want to buy a Tesla? Tell me who would who would say no. If you went to somebody said, "Listen, do you want to buy an iPhone?" <laughs> who who wouldn't fall over to get one of these? Um, and what's interesting is this perception is changing. So, a long, long time ago, when I was young, there was a, there was a really cool joke which uh, everybody used to tell at school and so on and so forth. This guy says, "Look, I've got this phone. I've got this brand new watch, and I can tell the distance to the to the moon. Um, I can do complex mathematics. Um, I can do so many different things on my watch." And then somebody says, "What's in the two suitcases?" And the guy would say, "The batteries." <laughs> okay. Now it's just now you literally can do this, and so you don't need to carry two batteries around with you. Um, so what was you know a joke in my childhood is now actually an essential way of living in my adulthood. Um, that's just in the space of my in my lifetime. Um, so I think uh, you know as societal paradigms change and shift shift and adapt, um, then what you find is is that you don't realise how much you've changed, how much has, how much water has actually flown, and then, you know, before you know it, you're in a completely different world. So, um, uh, the pace of change is really, really good, and we should. The matrix is not to look at the at the length of time it takes, but actually how quickly people adapt to mm -hmm. new circumstances. That's that's really the the key thing. And a lot of the technologies that we talk about are energy related ones. Um, but what they do then, in some cases, is give us um, the kind of non-energy related benefits. So for example, if you were to walk down a street, so in Belgium every year, uh, you have car-free days, you know, a couple yeah. of car-free days. And then what you find is, is that the air, it's, it's great to just walk down a street and have all these terrible fossil fumes uh, that kind of you know, wreck your uh, chest and make everyone sick and unhealthy. Unhe that kind of, you know, so many people die from, you know, uh, have premature deaths because of fossil fuels that are you know surrounding us so actually you you find people are happier the sun sure is shining you know the world is uh, the world is but you, we, we get glimpses of how beautiful the world can be um, and what we need to do is just to um, make sure that when we design our policies they fit around that beautiful world because we, we see it we know what it looks like and we all want it because we have so much fun on those one or two occasions when we get to see it. So to answer your question uh, uh, in fully in terms of legislative proposals, um, 
you know, the climate target is an important one, but I, I think what we need to do now is to make sure that within the legislation we've got enough institutional um, uh, platforms so that we can overshoot the target. You mm. know, 55 is not where we want to be. If you look at the renewable energy target or the energy efficiency targets, two essential pathways to getting to, you know, 1.5 degrees in the cheapest way. Um, uh, then we don't want to be driven constantly by policy. Uh, you know, we want the markets to really take off. We want to empower people to make the change. So the ones who want to go faster, let them go faster. The ones who are perhaps not quite there yet, give them a bit more time. But you know, don't hold everyone up. That's mm -hmm. the that's the key thing. And, and you know, if you look at um, uh, let's take renewable energies. If you look at them in, in certain cases, there's really only three things that we need to think about. The first one is, is how do you capture private capital? Because you know, no matter how much public money there is in the world, the the, the trick is, is to use the public money to capture and leverage private yeah. capital. That's the that's the key trick. And um, if you take um, the renewable energy directive, if the EU sets up, for example, a risk insurance scheme for large capital-intensive renewable energy solutions, then what you do is, is you cut the biggest cost because mm -hmm. renewables are all about an upfront capital investment and then you have virtually zero running costs. So if you can slash that or if you can harmonise the, the cost of um, uh, development, in the case of geothermal, the cost of exploration and drilling, th which is up to 70% of a project cost over a long that's lifetime, a lot. that's a hell of a lot, um, then actually what you do is, is you, 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 you allow private developers to just pile into the market um, that so that's the first thing we've, we've got to think about you know it's not a, it's not a radical change it's just a simple yeah. harmonized insurance scheme at a European mm -hmm. level so it doesn't matter whether you're based here in Brussels or you're in uh, Germany or in Poland or in you know um, uh, in, in you know in Spain or Italy wherever you are you have access to the same level of a uh, um, capital cost reduction that, that's that will be revolutionary Okay. And that makes the renewable energy directive targets all of a sudden that much. You know, they're not. It doesn't matter what level you set them at. You know, you're going to overshoot them. Mm -hmm. um, then we have an issue when it comes to electricity decarbonisation. So there, you know, we want to electrify more and more things. Um, uh, however, we still have a lot of fossils on the system. Um, now, the coal-based fossils are pretty much disappearing as we speak. The economics has just collapsed, will continue to collapse as more and more countries are, are propping up. And actually, globally, if you look at coal consumption, it's, it's really China. So the moment the Chinese feel confident to jump into other technologies, at the scale at which they've jumped into, say, you know, uh, conventional wind and solar, then what you're going to see is, is that China will solve the, the coal problem. The, the, the market will bottom out um, and collapse. I think the real harder question is, is what do you do with gas? Um, or fossil yeah. methane, the, the scientific name. Um, in Europe, the, the kind of elephant in the room uh, is the internal market for gas. So um, not many people know this, but um, we actually have a legal part of our treaty, the European Union's treaty, um, to actually focus on supply routes into Europe for fossil gas, to establish infrastructure. Um, still now. Yeah, yeah, still now. In fact, it's been intensified as we speak. So, um, How can it help us achieve the 55% reduction target? It, it doesn't. I mean, the only thing you can do, well, there's two things you can do. The first one is, is to um, s just change the word from an internal market for gas to an internal market for heat. Mm -hmm. So heat, like electricity, is a service. Um, you have multiple different, you know, providers providing you that service. Um, and if you're allowed to have that level, if you're allowed to have that genuine competitive market, then all of a sudden you'll start to chip away the huge economic cost um, and the geopolitical risk that you have with um, with gas. The, the second thing you'll do, um, uh, the second thing that's really important, but perhaps hard to do, is just to remove fossil fuel subsidies because 
people become subsidy junkies. It's just how, it, how the world is. Um, so one idea would be to actually give renewables the exact same total equivalent subsidy as a fossil. So mm -hmm. let's take Belgium, for example. <coughs> All of our examples are Belgium or Brussels, because... Yeah, 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 sure. I'm curious to know <laughs> yeah, yeah. how things are a, in Belgium. Because in, in many ways, Belgium is a, is a fantastic test case for um, how to do something right and how to do something wrong. It, <laughs> it's, the, it's the psyche of the country, you know, you, this kind of schizophrenia that runs through it. Um, so on the one hand, uh, we have some, you know, Belgium has some very uh, um, strong commitments to decarbonisation um, at federal level, huge amount of you know, civil servants and private sector really driving innovation, uh, really driving the pace of change. Just again, as I mentioned, look at the roads. You'll see electric buses, you'll see um, you know, electric scooters, electric vehicles um, of all marks on the road. So this is, people are moving already. Um, uh, but there's a discrepancy between that and what the actual country is planning to do. So Belgium is about to shift off of nuclear and yeah. go into gas. In fact, as other countries start to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions, Belgium is going to gradually ramp them up. So we're going in the wrong direction. This is, this is ridiculous. And we're going in that wrong direction because there was no conversation around heating. It was all about gas. Um, now, what you find is in the Brussels regional capital, you get two subsidies to replace your boiler with a gas boiler. Two subsidies. You, okay. you get a half a subsidy, and in fact, in many cases, it's, it's, been, it's been scrapped um, if you want to go to a renewable heating solution. Now, if you were to just levelise that playing field and say, well, actually, <coughs> it doesn't matter what the cost is, you as a consumer get a choice between a gas boiler, an oil boiler, a, you know, um, or a renewable heating solution, then what you'll find is, is that almost everybody will go for the renewable solution because you have such an awareness of climate uh, impacts within the country that it shaped the politics. You know, one of the biggest demonstrations, um, the two biggest demonstrations in Belgium's history, one was to protect the country, to stop it from splitting up. The second one was the climate demonstration, which I went on um, a few years ago, and as did many thousands uh, of other people, a cold, grey, <laughs> terrible day. We just turned up because it was enough was enough. So the politics is there. It's just that the machinery to make decisions isn't, and that's the thing that you need to chip away at. Okay. Um, and that's really where the role of the Belgian state is much more important, but also the role of the EU in effectively, if you can't stop the fossil fuel subsidy, then you just need to make sure that the renewable subsidies are at the same level. But why is it so difficult to stop a fossil fuel subsidy? Uh, because the elites are wrapped up in the fossil fuels. Um, and, uh, you know, if you... Uh, I'm, I, OK, let's, let's be honest about this one. Um, you know, I kind of talked about uh, energy policy and slavery to start off with. You know, you, you know the energy policy of the pharaohs was to go off and capture the Israelites, for example, and make them build the pyramids. Um, uh, the uh, you know, energy policy of the, the 80s and 90s was to invade the Middle East and take their oil. OK? Um, uh, what we, uh, what you find is, is that there are there's a very powerful uh, uh, elite who are wrapped up in the fossil industry. Um, they are the people who shape our opinion. Sometimes they're the people who certainly bankroll and pay a whole multitude of of uh, our, our public and private interests. So this is, you know, it's hard to take that apart. Um, and they do everything they can to s protect their world, as you would expect them to do. It's a rational, r rational decision to make. So, part of the part of the trick is to say, well, okay, you keep your pie, you keep your cake, c'est la vie. Uh, but let's give another cake to other people. 
same size. This is all publicly funded, and it's all magic money now. So you can easily, you know, entirely fund all the fossil interest, but also fund all the renewable ones. Now, the, the great thing there is just that once you start levelising that cost, once you built, once you installed all the capital infrastructure for renewables, your subsidies stop because you don't need them anymore. Um, and uh, you know, a short ten years worth of uh, if, you, if we had 10 years worth of the fossil fuel subsidies that the fossil industry is going to get and put them all into renewables, you'll have pretty much solved the climate problem from an energy perspective because it mm -hmm. really is, you know, we're at that stage now where the costs are collapsing and they're going to continue to collapse. Um, you have some infrastructure costs that need to be paid for, but it's not a cost issue, it's a timing issue. So if you can, you, you, and at the same time, it's also a political issue as well. So you, you find that as you know, country after country has a much more climate aware government come into place. It doesn't matter about what color they are, but what you're seeing is, is increasingly climate is a thing that's shaping and driving politics. Law courts are also shaping and driving politics. The amount of litigation cases you have against private companies, against countries. Germany's just yeah. lost a, um, a, 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 a legal case. The Netherlands famously lost a legal case. There's a legal case hanging over Belgium. So, you know, the, you're either whichever way you look at it, the fossil the social license for fossil fuels is going to get smaller and smaller. I don't think the fossil fuel subsidies will get smaller because you just need to buy people off. Okay. Let, let me tell you a story. It's important. So, you know, the, we talk a lot about, um, you know, Black Lives Matter. It's been a, a really powerful moment. Um, we had a moment like that in the 1830s when uh, it came to questions around ending the slave trade um, and the transatlantic slave trade. Um, and what happened is, is that in the 1830s, the UK Parliament said, OK, we will stop shipping slaves from Africa to uh, to all the different uh, um, countries where we use them uh, for a variety of activities. Their answer was to basically pay off the slave owners. So the kind of, fr you know, the, 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 the word sh sugar daddy kind of relates to the, the one-off payment that was given. And it took until about 2015, 2016 for the UK government to pay back the loans that it took to pay off the sugar um, uh, barons to, to free slavery, to free the slaves. Mm -hmm. So um, you're never going to get rid of that. You have to buy people out. Let's give them what they need. And then hopefully, you know, they can invest that money elsewhere if they want to, or they can carry on with their own little world. That's it. But let's just buy them out. But at the same time, let's start channeling that same level of funding into renewables. Because the, the beauty is, is that you don't need to keep it forever. Once you've built a geothermal plant, it's there. It's there for like 30, 40 years. You don't need to touch it anymore. Um, you may need to increase your capacity. Fair, fair enough. Build another one. Um, uh, your ground source heat pumps in your in your in your homes they last for decades. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not like you know, 15 years you're going to replace your gas boiler. These last month, virtually double that that space. So um, you know, we need to you know that one-off payment you're making there. It's a one-off. It's finished. You solved the problem. Okay, makes sense. I mean, I, I totally agree with mm -hmm. your solution. And now let's um, zoom into a bit into geothermal. Okay. Um, can you share a bit what geothermal energy oh is and what uh, potential it has for decarbonization of Europe? Yeah, of course. Look, uh, uh, maybe I should just explain to your to your viewers what geothermal energy is because yes. that's always a good starting point. So it's all of the heat that's trapped beneath the surface of the Earth. Um, as you, you know, from our you know from our school textbooks, we know the the the, curse, the, the Earth's core is a huge 
huge uh, ball of energy, um, and that's got about three billion years worth of energy resources before it dies out. Okay, mm -hmm. civilization will be you know, in a different space in three billion years time. I, I won't take a bet as to what will be <laughs> what will be the dominant species then. Okay, um, uh, so we've got an abundant resource. Uh, what you need to do is just to find uh, a the type of drill that you need and to drill it to the depth that you need to access the heat pocket. Okay. That's all geothermal is. So there's two main types of technology. We call them shallow and deep. Um, uh, shallow geothermal is where you don't have to drill that far down, just a, you know, a couple of meters, in some cases a couple of hundred meters, um, uh, to provide the energy sources for large buildings, uh, you know, whole, whole households as well. Um, sometimes we call them ground source heat pumps, or it does a multitude of different things, but they're just geothermal heat pumps. Um, so to give you an example, um, if you, we're all familiar with the Bundestag, we know what the building looks like. They built draw, uh, bore holds, uh, mm -hmm. geothermal holds, um, and the heating and cooling is supplied by geothermal. Okay. Um, the European Parliament has just done the same thing. The Maltese Parliament has done that. Um, if you look at... Um, the European uh, Parliament here in Brussels. Here in Brussels. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the NATO building, if you drive past, uh, if you drive on the way to the airport in Belgium, um, in Brussels, sorry, you'll go past the NATO building. Okay, they yeah. have solar PV on the top and they have geothermal on the bottom to do the heating cooling. <coughs> so with that, you need to have a heat pump. And the heat pump is the technology that, that helps you kind of get the energy that you need from the ground. Um, and then you can drill deeper and deeper and deeper. And um, um, and the deeper you drill, the higher the temperature that you 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 hit, depending on the the heat basin that you you're, you're tapping into. Um, so you can take, for example, very low temperatures at like a, you know. A it's 60 degrees and you can use a heat pump to pump it up to 90 degrees which is enough for a, a district heating system for example so there's lot I mean this potential is just about everywhere um, and in some cases you have much higher temperatures close to the surface so you mm -hmm. don't need to drill that far down um, uh, so that's geothermal in a, in a nutshell it's you know we are a cousin of the fossil extractive industries we're the good guys though we're the renewable <laughs> guys the others are kind of taking the, f the, 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 the fossil oil fossil gas or minerals in some cases all we're doing is just creating, creating uh, a you know, closed loop chambers underneath the ground and effectively moving either w hot water at the moment, uh, uh, called geothermal brines. Um, and in some cases, there's new technologies where you don't even need to take a, a natural uh, water aquifer. You can actually just create a, a loop underground. Um, and actually, there's some, some people now who are taking the w wells that were drilled for oil and gas or coal mines. And y in case of coal mines, you just reflood them, and then you've got hot water, and you just create a heat network. Okay. Uh, that's, this, is, this is happening in so many places now. Um, uh, and then the other one is, is you take an oil well uh, or a, you know, a gas plant that's kind of dried up and you've still got a perfectly good chamber underneath um, and you can actually just close it off and create a geothermal system on the back of that one as well. So there's so many ways in which we can help decarbonize and actually repurpose the existing fossil assets as they come to the end of their lives by just switching them over to geothermal. This is what I was trying to say about earlier, about how the, the costs are so cheap when you really look at it, mm -hmm. um, and the scalability is just so high. Uh, we just need to make sure that the, the regulatory framework allows that to happen. Um, and, and what's the potential yeah. of geothermal in mm. the whole reduction of uh, oh. greenhouse gases in Globally, in globally, and in Europe. Globally, in Europe. Uh, so you can get, uh, you can build a geothermal ground source heat pump anywhere in the world. Um, the anywhere under any house, uh, yeah, yeah. anywhere. Um, I think, I think it's uh, roughly under um, uh, eleven or twelve 
meter, oh, is it eight meters? You have roughly the same average temperature anywhere in the world. Okay. Um, so in some cases it's going to be a degree or two higher, in some cases maybe one or two lower. But you can put a ground source heat pump there and you can use it. So ge geography isn't a limitation there. Um, you, for heating, you pretty much you, there are so many different uh, geographies you can apply it to. Um, uh, in, in the US at the moment, a lot of it's kind of focused on uh, high temp uh, higher temperatures where you turn it into electricity. Um, um, but what you're finding is, is increasing as people start to look towards the heating. Uh, you know, how do you decarbonize heating and cooling? Then it just the economics of it becomes so much more uh, more viable for heating as well as electricity solutions. So it's there's no geographical limitation to it whatsoever. In the past, people would build uh, the power plants closer to volcanic fault lines. Mm -hmm. uh, kind of in the um, the whole idea then is is that you don't have to drill too far down in order to get to um, uh, uh, the high temperature heats. But you know, there's so many new technologies out there now. It's you know, geography is not a barrier. What is a barrier? is the fact that with geothermal um, sometimes you have to build two parts you have to build the mm -hmm. geothermal part for heating then you have to build a, a district heating system the heat network to supply the heat to the customers um, and uh, you know if we can find ways to finance that infrastructure then all of a sudden the cost of building the geothermal plant drops um, if you can find ways to reduce the cost of drilling then the cost of geothermal dro dro drops even further and just to you know just to give you an order of magnitude of the cost that we're talking about so mm -hmm, the yeah, french are uh, okay so here's here's, here's a really interesting story so everyone talked about france moving over to nuclear in the you know after the first oil shock and um and they did they moved quite heavily into nuclear what they also did was realize that actually as part of their energy independence uh, gambit they would look at heating decarbonization and they mm -hmm. created a couple of uh risk insurance schemes for geothermal and uh, you know in the in the 80s there's a huge boom in geothermal it's, it's carried on as this risk insurance scheme has been um, in operation and today in front in Europe you know there's the highest penetration geothermal district heating systems are in France um, it's it's no it's no uh, it's no surprise obviously um, now what does this mean uh, so every couple of years the environment agency in France does an assessment on the cost of heating in the country um, and in the, the last report I think it was for the year 2019 what they found is is that the the cost of geothermal is as low as 13 euros per megawatt hour mm -hmm. compared to gas which was 51 euros per megawatt oh, wow. hour. Wow that's a so big difference. Wow yeah so imagine giving that money back into people's pockets then all of a sudden that kind of local economic stimulus like I said renewables make you happy <laughs> they make they make life so much better they reduce our costs they increase our livelihoods and our um our life expectations um and our lifestyles so this is you know these are the type of things that we need to be factoring in um when we think about um uh geothermal in particular but you know all the other renewables as well they are they're good for us in every single category you measure them they are good for us um so, so yeah. the only issue is the starting investment costs yeah. and then it's basically solved yeah i mean you know the, the i mean the, there's like a, there's different stages of the kind of construction of a geothermal plant mm -hmm. but you know the, the first one is obviously exploring so you know roughly where to drill where do you get the highest temperature and in the kind of in the geothermal world we look at flow rates for the for brines because um, again they're kind of moving water around the chamber yep. um, um, uh, so once you kind of know where to drill then the second thing is actually getting access to the drill now um, 
as uh, the most sophisticated drills are locked up with our cousins in the oil and gas industry. If they were, if more and more countries start mandating um, uh, bans on extraction um, uh, or drilling for you know oil and gas, then you're going to find a lot of drills waiting to come into geothermal, mm -hmm. um, and uh, that will then you know potentially reduce the cost of uh, of um, uh, those geothermal drills, um, and then you can just start drilling anywhere else as well. So that's that's really important. The the timetable and the logistics of just getting the right type of drill at the right place at the right time and at the right cost is is an issue. Okay. Um, and uh, you know, and again, to give you an order of magnitude to that one, if you drill, if you use that drill uh, to drill for oil, you maybe get seventy dollars a barrel. If you use that uh, drill to drill for gas, you'll get something like sixty, fifty dollars. It's indexed to the price of oil still. If you use that for geothermal hot water, you get ten euro cents. So, <laughs> so you know, obviously the commercial interest is to go for the fossils. Yeah. If we can close off the door to the fossils, then those drills, are they've only got one purpose in life, which is to drill. <laughs> so, you know, if we can shift the drilling away from fossils into geothermal, you just unlock, you unlock so much potential. Um, the, um, it just, again, it makes it so much easier to put the energy we have in fossils into geothermal. We solve our problems so much quicker. And and in Europe now, what's the percent of energy that we get from geothermal, and what could this percentage be? Okay, at the moment the percentage is very very small, um, mm -hmm. uh, and it, it's partly small because whilst in certain regions you've had quite high penetrations, um, it's really only been a couple of regions where they've had the right type of uh, infrastructure, which is kind of either built up locally or nationally. So France is a good example. Um, uh, but what you find is is that we, we, we run up against many obstacles because we have two things to, to, to build out and we're up against a market that's largely closed off and that market is the gas market. So the, it's, it's not so much how much geothermal there is on, online at the moment, it's all about what our potential is. Now, um, a few studies have said that we could decarbonize about 25% of the population, um, uh, which is a, a, a good number, but that's kind of using the old technologies. If you start factoring mm -hmm. in all of the new technologies that are kind of coming online, as well as the innovative drilling uh, systems that are used in the oil and gas sector, then all of a sudden that that whole number radically changes. So, you know, I would imagine a, a rough estimate. We, you know, we be pretty comfortable. We could do half of the heating needs. Um, if you then combine us with other renewable heating solutions as well, it it all of a sudden be doesn't become a problem. So there's mm -hmm. no one silver bullet in life, but we're certainly a big bullet. Yeah. <laughs> if you, you know, if bullet. we're allowed, yeah, uh, to get access to the market, and it's all about access to the market for us. So what then are your recommendations to consumers and companies on to how to better utilize the geothermal energy? Um, okay, really good question. So uh, for uh, industry, they're kind of moving already. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of this is a lot of our world is kind of self-driven. Um, you know, people understand the economics, they understand the long lifespan. So it's just a case of can we organise the, the logistics and the capital to, to build our geothermal system. So you know, companies like IKEA have been you know doing geothermal boreholes for a long, long time. Um, we've just had famously um, uh, the Janssen and Janssen Chemical Company in Belgium, where they've you know they just dropped their own geothermal well for their mm -hmm own company because it meets the sustainability goals but actually just gives you a reliable source of low-cost energy for a long long period of time so you know it just makes their business much more profitable and much more economically efficient um, so companies are kind of moving in that direction already there's a famous example in New Zealand uh, all I've given you is examples of Belgium and, and Europe but New Zealand's a great example so uh, there was um, uh, a power plant a geothermal power plant um, uh, there um, and they kind of did a deal with the local uh, paper 
mills. Mm-hmm. Um, they did this with the paper mills because they, uh, you know, the, the paper mill wanted to look at its own decarbonisation pathway and work out where they wanted to go. So it slashed the operating costs by forty six percent. Um, just in one company, um, oh, wow. and it you know, and it has a massive impact in terms of their greenhouse gas emission footprint as well, because it kind of it kind of collapses. So mm-hmm. um, companies want to do this anyway. The issue for them is is that in some cases you you have to take on the risk of doing the geothermal projects yourself. But if you're going to be there for 20, 30 years, and you're going to be capable of making you know uh, uh, economic rational decisions over a 20, 30 year uh, lifespan, then actually doing your own energy supply is the safest thing you could do. You do risk yourself from the entire energy system around you. It's a smart thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, the issue for them there is that sometimes you need to build infrastructure. So you okay. need to build the connecting pipes that take you from the geothermal well to your offices and your factories and so on and so forth. So bringing down the cost of that is, is where you've got a lot of in- innovative ideas. Um, uh, so you know okay if we take if we go outside the industry space and look at the building side of things what you find in france is, is that in some cases you have heat purchase agreements where you know a local authority will agree to buy 30 percent of its heating need from a geothermal well mm-hmm. what that means is, is that all of a sudden the risk of actually doing the geothermal project development you know becomes uh, uh, that much more stable you then know you have a customer who's going to buy you out and then your trick is just to just build on more customers on a modular basis to your heat network and then you get more and more you know more and more economic benefits from from that so there are different ways in which you could do this a lot of the times though that happens because you have the enlightened companies or the enlightened local politicians and local governments and cities who say we're going to do this so they go ahead and do this um, sometimes they issue heat trans, uh, uh, heat market tenders and you know geothermal projects will do very very well um, uh, in, ter- you know, in terms of the life cycle costs it's it's not an issue there uh, you know when it comes to the full market share we have to understand that you know, again, heat is half of the energy that we consume, mm-hmm. but renewables are really only 20% of that. Um, if you take uh, electricity, electricity is about a quarter of the energy that we consume, and you've got about, you know, f- what, 20% of that is in uh, renewables. Um, so renewables have had a really small penetration, but virtually every single one of them, if you start combining them together as well, then we can pretty much do 100% uh, renewable energy systems. There's a myth that um, you can't do 100% renewable energy systems anywhere in the world, um, and that you need to have fossils to kind of balance out systems. Uh, you need to have things like hydrogen and fossil-based hydrogen to kind of as a transition um, but actually when you look at the nuts and bolts and the science and the engineering and the costs you realize that actually that's all rubbish um, what you can find is is that if you combine for example baseload geothermal electricity with baseload electricity from ocean energy um, or concentrated solar as well then actually you can use those as the kind of grid balancing mechanisms for you know intermittent uh, uh, renewable energy mm-hmm. uh, electricity sources when it comes to heat you can use you know and people have been using for a very very long time heat stores you know uh, heat storage is and renewable heat storage is a big big uh, issue it's just it doesn't get any visibility or coverage because it's not sexy plus you can't see it you know um, so um, uh, you know once these issues start to come on board what you what you realize is that you can do entire heating cooling um, uh, um, uh, heating cooling and electricity by renewables it's not it's mm-hmm. not really a problem grids have been proven to manage all sorts of penetrations of, of electricity and at the same time as you start to build much more of a flexible decentralized centralized systems then what you find is, is you build in that resilience into the systems anyway so grid the infrastructure isn't a problem the access to the renewable energy source is not a problem the politics around the transition are a problem okay 
Um, Why? And, well, and, and you know, it's like, as I was saying, it's this very powerful lobby that wants to keep the world as it is. Some people are just saying, don't change anything. If you were to go back to, you know, uh, if you were to go back and maybe ask the French, again, would you like to go, would you like to go to a, a, you know, a monarchy one more time? You'll still get people saying, well, actually, okay, it's la vie. It's always been like this. Um, so, the, you know, some people are just prefer the world as it was. Mm -hmm. uh, some people are happy to embrace the world as it is, and some people just don't care, they just want to have a happy life. Um, and what we have to do is to recognize that the people who want to keep the world as it is have a vested interest from that. And if we can start to disentangle the vested interest from the decision-making process, making it much more transparent. You know, there's, you know, uh, uh, you know we have a couple of quite um, uh, difficult issues where you've got regulators, senior regulators who uh, a, a couple of days after they retire join a fossil-based uh, industry. I mean, you know, the, the, the access for there is, is terrible. You've seen the case with David Cameron in the UK government just recently. You know, th th this needs to be much more open and transparent. So we need to have better political decision-making. Mm -hmm. You know, let's take our modelling, for example. All the modelling that's done on complicated or expensive energy infrastructure, it's a secret. You just can't get access to the underlying assumptions. It's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. In this day and age, these really important issues are kept secret. Now, I can understand people saying, okay, but this is commercial sensitivity. Fine, be commercially sensitive. But you're asking for public money. You're asking for my tax money. I have a right to know where my money is going. So, you know, opening up the models, that all automatically undermines the, the, the rationale to build fossils. Mm -hmm. uh, and to keep fossils on the system. Um, you know, if you were to look at, you know, we talk about carbon pricing, we forget to talk about social costs of carbon as well. If you were to look at the impact on health um, uh, benefits, for example, or the health costs on fossils, all of a sudden the economics completely changes. If you start adding in geopolitical risk into fossils or energy decisions, all of a sudden then you would, you would you'd be mad to go for a fossil option now. In fact, you'd be quick to move off of it. The other thing that's kind of blocking us in is, you know, re you know aside from poor regulatory decisions, um, is is unhelpful international treaties. So there's something called the Energy Charter Treaty. Again, it's one of these things that's very secret. Nobody knows about it until lawyers get you in the end. Um, and what happens is, is that you've had a couple of uh, instances where fossil companies um, you know, are you know, rejecting governments who said we need to decarbonize, we need to save humanity, mm -hmm. and say, well, hold on a second, you need to compensate me for my decision. So there's a few examples where people have built um, uh, fossil plants long after the Paris Agreement was signed, um, after the EU's uh, climate and energy package was agreed. Everyone knew the trajectory was going to be zero, so it's not like it's a surprise. But they've gone off, built them out, and they're saying, well, hold on a second, you're going to compensate me for the lifetime of my project. And they hide behind the Energy Charter Treaty. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that as Europe we need to unpick. Now you can either walk away from the treaty, there's, there's issues around walking away from a treaty, um, uh, as we've seen with the Brexit discussions, yeah. you should never do that if you sign up to it, you should honour those treaties, which means you've got to change it. And if we can change it, and there is there is discussions from the Energy Charter Treaty itself, the Secretary there really understand that, okay, this is this is a you know this is a crucial issue between the, the success and failure of the treaty. So if that happens very quickly, then what you're going to see is, is that the legal barriers to transition disappear, okay. um, and that's that's really really important. Um, and then regulators. We forgot to talk about regulators. You know, what does the Commission need to do? Um, so I kind of mentioned uh, earlier on that we need to have like a, an investment fit pieces of climate legislation. So mm -hmm. less of the greenwashing and the blah blah blah. What we need to do is is to have. Uh, you know, um, uh, policies with very clear timetables, um, with very clear targets and goals, whether they're binding or not, 
is debatable, preferably it'd be good to have them binding, but the crucial thing is, is you need to have the underlying uh, uh, support measures to make sure you get to whatever target you want to get to. And as I said earlier, if you put in a couple of pieces of um, uh, institutional foundations, mm -hmm. then the targets become redundant because we're going to overshoot the targets. Um, so we need to, you know, we need to make sure that we have good binding targets. We need to make sure that we have, you know, the the, the supporting measures, the yep. risk insurance schemes, you know, heat purchase agreements, um, better uh, templates for electricity purchase agreements, power purchase agreements. Um, uh, we need to have much more open modelling, much more open planning and decision making. Uh, we need to harmonise wherever possible the environmental impact assessment so that, you know, um, uh, decisions are made quicker whether it's yes or no you know quicker so you don't suck up a lot of your resources mm -hmm. into something that may not that may not happen um, and at the same time you know we we remove all of the barriers that are propping up the fossil industry because the moment you regulate those out or you regulate you give us a chance to sit at the sit at the table and actually compete you know, geothermal can wipe the floor with um, uh, a lot of the fossil fuel industry. Uh, many other renewables can do the same thing as well. So I think that's the trick for the the, the regulators now is not to just fixate everything on 55, yeah. but to think about 2050 so that we don't solve 2030 but have a new problem for 2014-2050. That's the that's the trick there. Wow. Thank you very much, Sanjeev. <laughs> it was a lot of information and uh, a lot of interesting facts about what should be done in order to stimulate the renewable energy transition. I definitely like your points of views that you highlighted into how we need to get there and how we need to think not just about the numbers, but how we make the underlying system work for us. Um, so thank you very much. And I do hope that soon I'll have a geothermal heat pump at my house. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know somebody who can help you on that. <laughs> thank you. Please share. Of course. And um, yeah, thank you very much. Um, I, I wish you success in, in your not easy job <laughs> into working for um, geothermal energy in Europe. Thank you. Thank you very much.